top of Mount Arabelle and all behind me is the region of North Galilee and Capernaum. This was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry where Jesus and his disciples taught and Jesus went from town to town and performed miracles and the reason why I tell you that is because I want to bring you here so that we can walk these pathways together, so that we can experience uh, life here in Galilee uh, where Jesus lived and taught and performed miracles. Friends, we already know that the Word of God is living and active, and I can't wait to bring you with me and where we can walk these pathways, where we can see God's Word alive all around us. So Overlake, I love you. Can't wait to bring you with me. All right, all right. Well, hey, Overlake, it is good to be with you today. My name's Mike, and uh, I just returned from Israel, and I mean that. I want to take you with me. We're going next summer, and it, uh, for me, it was 20 years in ministry before I ever had an opportunity to go. I, I want to take you with me next summer. Um, it, the deal is that even now, I, I was in the book of Luke this morning, so I'm just reading through Luke, and the words on the page are just... They're just leaping off the page as as the the things that Jesus taught his uh, followers uh, are, are so alive. They're so real because just last Sunday I was on the very steps that Jesus was on when he taught his disciples those things. And I want you to have that same kind of framework. I want to take you on that same kind of journey. So uh, please go online and uh, join us if you feel like that's something that you might want to do. Start the conversation with your uh, you know your spouse or, or uh, however that looks, but we really do want to be with you next summer. So uh, I would love to encourage you right now. Would you grab your notes out of your handout, starting a series on heaven today. I want to tell you, this has never happened to me in all of my years of ministry. I, I studied, I read, I was excited about this, uh, this series, and so I started writing, and I ended up writing a message that was like two and a half times too long to give on a Sunday morning. So literally, I just cut it in half. So today, you're, you're getting like the first portion of, of, a, of a three-part message, and uh, I just want to encourage you, would you please come back next week? Would you please come back the third week? Because if you don't, you're only going to get a small picture of what heaven is going to be like. I don't want you to leave lopsided thinking, oh, how come he didn't mention this? It's coming the next week, the week after that. So we're jumping into this series of heaven uh, on heaven. And I want to tell you, I am so fired up. I am absolutely fired up. My prayer is that it fires you up as well. Um, we are also, just so you know, we're doing a Q&A session after our Sunday night service. So um, I know there are a lot of questions on heaven, a lot of things that we won't be able to tackle in a three-week series. So on our Sunday night service, uh, we're having the ability to, to write in questions. And then Pastor Gary and I will do a little Q&A session after each of the next three weeks. So if you're interested, you can join us there. But friends, we live in a weird season where speaking of the afterlife is out of fashion. And I understand a, a little bit about that because obviously none of us can speak from experience, uh, although every so often a few folks flatline for a while 
And then they come back with tales from the other side, right? And they're either tales of hope and fulfillment or fear and trembling. Uh, But the Bible is clear that we are going to live forever. You are everlasting, right? You are an immortal. And I don't know what somebody's told you. I don't know what you've believed about yourself. But you are going to last for eternity, C.S. Lewis writes, he says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You are an immortal. You are everlasting. You will live forever. In either one of two states, you will either live with God in heaven, in an incredible and in many ways indescribable state of bliss, or completely separated from God and from all of the good things that emanate from his being. In a place the English call hell, the Greek call Hades, the Hebrew call Sheol, in a place you and I can just call bad news. And the imagery from scripture is uh, used to convey the truth of this place, and it's horrific. A place of fire, sulfur, conscious torment, the place where the worm never dies, where Satan and his demons don't run it like the Hotel California, but they are inmates in that prison suffering in the lake of fire for eternity, a place that Revelation calls the second death. And I put these verses on your notes, Revelation 20, 10, and 14. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. Friends, the only good thing I can say about hell is that you don't have to go there. Nobody does. Jesus Christ went through hell so that you wouldn't have to. That's the bad news. But this isn't a message series on hell. This is a series on heaven. And it's very needed because in our world, in the church, the doctrine of heaven is much neglected. So I'll just give you a few examples. For example, John Calvin never wrote on the eternal state on any length. And if you know John Calvin's work, you know that he wrote on everything for a long, long time. Theologian Reinald Niebuhr wrote an in-depth two-volume study called The Nature and Destiny of Man and wrote nothing about heaven in that work. Uh, A guy named William Shedd wrote three volumes, Dogmatic Theology. They had 87 pages on eternal punishment, but only two on heaven. Friends, if heaven is our final destination, shouldn't we spend some healthy portion of our time studying the scriptures and being enlightened on what we will be doing for all of eternity? Let me ask you a question. If you were to be transferred to a new city, if your job was taking you to a new location, aren't you the kind of person that would get online and do a little research to see what neighborhoods might be the best to raise your kids, what the schools there are like, what the, the shopping centers are like, where a, a, a nice place might be for you to settle and to raise your family? I mean, if you were transferred to a new location, wouldn't you spend some time thinking about how to best prepare yourself for life in that location? I bet you would. Or if you knew that you were to inherit a billion dollars, 
If you knew there was a billion dollars in your future, wouldn't that change the way you looked at your current financial struggles? I bet it would. What's interesting is that when we talk about heaven and when we start to let the reality of heaven sink into our souls, the recognition is we're being transferred to an incredible new city and the inheritance is far better than a billion dollars. And friends, we, we, we don't let that impact our lives at all today. And that's a tragedy. And you might, you might ask yourself, well, why is that? How come in today's world, in today's church, how come we don't let the reality of our eternal home impact our joy in our living today? And I do have a theory on that. My theory is, I think it's a ploy of Satan. I think it's Satan that steals our joy away. It's Satan that causes us to have a very fuzzy view of heaven. Because when we have a clear view of the incredible glory, the holistic beauty that God has planned for us to enjoy his manifest presence, we will be filled and fueled with that reality. Certainly the Apostle Paul was. And so I put a a couple of verses on your notes. Philippians 1.20 The Apostle Paul's writing, he says, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. And you look at the Apostle Paul, you read his writings, you see that he lived with a vibrant awareness of the reality of the life to come in heaven. He longed for it, and yet he knew that God had prepared him for a purpose here on earth. And so he allowed heaven and and his longing for life with God to bring a vibrancy and a fruitfulness to his present life and his mission. C.S. Lewis argued that the people with the clearest view of the life to come are the ones that are the most productive and effective in this life. Paul writes that we should, in fact, set our sights on heaven. He says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. You might want to circle that phrase, the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So we are encouraged to think about heaven. We're encouraged to to gaze at the realities of heaven and to let those realities impact and fuel our life here and now. But friends, I think it's very safe to say there are an incredible number of misconceptions about what eternity is going to be like, right? We have all these fuzzy thoughts about, you know, these cherubic angels in diapers with harps floating around on clouds, you know. Uh, this far side cartoon kind of says it well. It says, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. You know, it's just... Uh, These misconceptions in the book called Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain uh, writes about how the stern Miss Watson warns her young charge about the hellish destiny of restless boys and the heavenly reward awaiting those who sit up straight and are polite and study their spelling. 
And he writes, now she had got a start and she went on and told me all about the good place, heaven. She said, all a body would have to do there is go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it, but I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there. She said, not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. Right? And that's what a lot of people think. And I've even heard, I, I, I was in youth ministry for a number of years, and I heard folks say things like, students say things like, well, I don't want to go to heaven. I'd rather go to hell because that's where my friends are going to be. And again, it's this misconception of what eternity is going to be like. John Eldridge wrote in The Journey of Desire. He says, nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We've settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks, forever and ever? That's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find life where we can. You see, if we have this fuzzy view of eternity, if, if, if it's not fueling our imagination, if it's not connecting with the desires that God's given us, then it's not going to impact our life in the here and now. A song by Kenny Chesney has the refrain, everybody wants to go to heaven, have a mansion high above the clouds. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. And that is a reality in our culture today. And again, I can't think of any other reason outside of a ploy of Satan, our enemy, to get ordinary people whom God loves not to yearn passionately for the place of unspeakable awesomeness. You can quote me on that. Unspeakable awesomeness that God has prepared for us in eternity. And since we in the church don't spend too much time thinking about or talking about heaven, then a lot of thought about heaven in our culture is simply made up. And so we have a video clip I want to show you. It's from a movie called The Invention of Lying, where it portrays the main character, Ricky Gervais, inventing heaven to comfort his dying mom. You can see how his grief motivates him to invent these ideas and how it's completely devoid of the presence of God. So go ahead and watch this clip. Uh, the interesting thing about that is that he's just making it up. Ricky Gervais doesn't believe in heaven. He's just cobbling together some ideas. But the interesting paradox is how interested everyone was in it. And if you, uh, depending on which survey you read in America today, between 80 and 95% of Americans believe in life after death. What's interesting is what they believe. And often it is a, a whole variety of beliefs, deep confusion, and sort of a spiritual smorgasbord of all sorts of religious ideas, popular movie concepts. We are interested in an afterlife, but we don't have a biblical framework for what God has planned for eternity. And I've been reading a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It, it is an amazing book. And uh, I'm not sure that I believe with 100% of it, but it is amazing what it is that the scripture does have to say about our eternity. 
And what Randy Alcorn argues is that we should allow our minds to be fueled and saturated by the scriptures. But then under the influence of God's spirit, we should be free to allow our imaginations to um, be led by what scripture says to us about our eternal home. And so I want to do just that. I want to open up the Bible. I want to take a look at these concepts that are mentioned in Scripture. And I want it to fuel you. I want it to inspire you. I want it to fire you up. Because as I've done this study, it has fired me up and made me very, very excited for what God has planned. So I want to give you a couple of further reading assignments in the Scripture. If you would read Revelation 21, 22 this week. Also Isaiah 60, 65, and 66. So these are five chapters in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that speak to what we're going to be talking about today and in the weeks to come. But if you want the Cliff Notes version, here it is. We will be resurrected and glorified, as will all of creation. We will be redeemed and made new, as the entire universe will. We will dwell in this remade and renewed and resurrected reality in the awesome presence of our God and our Father and our Savior. And it's going to be really, really, really good. That's what it's going to be about. Here are a few aspects of the multifaceted reality that we'll enjoy. The first fill-in is we will enjoy the magnificence of the nations. The magnificence of the nations. In other words, all that is beautiful and glory, all that is wealthy, all that is wonderful about all the nations, we will enjoy. Isaiah 60, verse 4 and 5 say, look and see, for everyone is coming home. Your sons are coming from distant lands. Your little daughters will be carried home. Your eyes will shine and your heart will thrill with joy. For merchants from around the world will come to you. They will bring you the wealth of many lands. And you continue to read that chapter, you see that he, uh, the prophet Isaiah refers to caravans of camels bringing gold and frankincense, uh, flocks and rams, the ships of the earth bringing silver and gold, there are forests of fir and cypress and pine, and it just goes on and on. The magnificence of the earth will remain and it will be gathered together. And what is interesting is the indication that even the things that were used to glorify man, even the things that were used to, um, to, uh, for idolatry's sake and to worship false gods, even those things will be redeemed and they will all be gathered together to proclaim the glory of God. The entire universe and all of the wealth of the nations will be reclaimed and restored and redeemed by Jesus. If you read Revelation 21 verse 26, it says the nations will bring their glory and honor into the new city. And what this means is the second filling that the heart of the nations will be turned to God. The heart of the nations will turn to God. And in Isaiah 60, verse 9, also verse 14, we read, They will honor the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has filled you with splendor. Those who despised you will kiss your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord and Zion of the Holy One of Israel. 
And friends, this speaks to the movement of God, which is happening now. It has always been his mission as you read all the way through scripture. And that is that every single corner of creation, that every heart of humanity would recognize and proclaim the glory of God. That we would spend our time in worship and adoration of the only thing that is worthy of our worship and adoration, our devotion and praise. And that is God Almighty and His Son, Jesus the Christ. We see in Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the heart of the nations will turn to God. The magnificence of the nations will proclaim the glory of God. Again, the next fill-in is that there will be a new joyful Jerusalem. A new joyful Jerusalem, having just come from Jerusalem. I can tell you that Jerusalem is beautiful and it's magnificent. But it's also hotly contested and there are all sorts of of parts and aspects of Jerusalem which are in pain and are uh, hurting and there's unrest and distrust. and, And the promise is that Jerusalem will be made new and it will be joyful and beautiful. Revelation 21 Verse 2 says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Isaiah sixty fifteen says, Though you were once despised and hated with no one traveling through you, I will make you beautiful forever, a joy to all the generations. And it will be huge and splendid. Everything about Jerusalem will undergo an almost indescribable upgrade. Give you a few examples. Uh, God says in Isaiah 60, he is going to replace the bronze with gold. He's going to replace the iron with silver. Friends, that's called an upgrade, right? In Revelation 21, we see the city, just the city, will be 1,400 miles long and 1,400 miles wide. Friends, that's big. That's a big city. That's like continental United States, big And that's not the whole of heaven. That's not the nations. That's just the city of Jerusalem. Friends, that's that's called an upgrade. Okay, Uh, the city wall will be made of jasper and the entire construction will be that of gold. That's an upgrade. There will be peace in Jerusalem. Peace, which that city has never enjoyed outside of a brief golden period when David was king about 3000 years ago. Friends, that's an upgrade. The scripture says in Isaiah 60, verse 17, I will make peace your leader and righteousness your ruler. Violence will disappear from your land. The desolation and destruction of war will end. And not only will these things come to pass, but friends, if you're filling in the blanks, the recognition is that this prophecy fulfillment simply attests to the greatness of our God and our Lord. Isaiah 60 verse 16 says, you will know at last that I, the Lord, am your savior and redeemer, the mighty one of Israel. Now, this is Isaiah. And many of you are familiar with Isaiah 52 and 53, in which the prophet Isaiah speaks prophecy and writes prophecy regarding the coming Messiah. And he describes the arrival of Jesus Christ. 
And he describes the person of Jesus Christ. And he describes how Jesus Christ will suffer and die for our sins. That that he will be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And if you read through Isaiah 52 and 53 and you see how those prophecies have been fulfilled to a T in Jesus You can understand then how the prophecies in Isaiah 60 and 65 and 66 will also come to pass as it's written to the glory of God, attesting to his greatness and the fact that he has spoken these things into our understanding before they ever come to pass. I want you to note the similarities between Revelation 21 and 22 and Isaiah 60. This is another example of the Old Testament and the New Testament speaking the exact same language regarding eternity. In Isaiah 60, 19, it says, No longer will you need the sun to shine by day, nor the moon to give his light by night. For the Lord your God will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set. Your moon will not go down. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning will come to an end. Friends, if you just look at the line that says your sun will never set. Washingtonians, the promise of sunshine should be enough. Right? To fuel us and to inspire us. This idea of of sunshine. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You just want to write down in the margin, you know, the words like warmth and light, right? And, and, and all of this will be because God himself will be with us. Revelation 22.5 says, there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. Randy Alcorn says that in order to get a picture of heaven, which will one day be centered on a new earth in this resurrected and restored reality that God uh, reclaims for his own glory. You don't need to look up into the clouds. You simply need to look around and imagine what this earth will be like with no sin and no death and no suffering and no corruption. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And so in this new heaven and a new earth, we see a purified universe offered as our playground and a dwelling place for God. There will be a union of heaven and earth. Now, we won't live in the clouds, but we will dwell here on earth with the Lord on an earth in a universe that has been resurrected and restored. And what is most exciting is Revelation 22, verse 3, which says, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. No curse upon anything. Friends, the impact of the curse gone. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. When Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis, when they chose to disobey God and to walk their own path, they, that rebellion, that sin, that impacted everything. It was the curse of sin, the fall of man. You may have heard the doctrine of the fall. And the doctrine of the fall created an enormous thud that reverberated throughout all of creation. And in a nutshell, there are four implications to the fall, to the curse of sin. Uh, These are for free. The first is a broken relationship between humans and God. That's called spiritual pain. 
And some of you are in spiritual pain right now. The second implication of the curse of sin is a broken relationship between human and human. That's relational pain. And some of you are in relational pain right now between a spouse and spouse, between sons and daughters, between your father and mother. I don't know what that looks like, but, but this is an implication of the curse of sin. The next implication is a broken view of yourself. This is called psychological pain. And some of you are in psychological pain right now. And the fourth implication of the curse is that created order is tainted from top to bottom because of sin. This is called biological pain. And all these things are in the reality of a fallen world that we live in. So you can imagine when the curse is gone. Now, when you say yes to a relationship of love with Jesus Christ, when you open your heart and invite him to come in, The Bible says that you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And the reality is that with the presence of God's Holy Spirit in our life, we see the beginning, the first fruits, if you will, of this curse being rolled back. We see that God works and he is renewing and restoring and redeeming our very selves in this life. And we see the effect of God's Spirit in us and we see healing happen in our lives when it comes to our spiritual pain being healed, our, our uh, relational pain being healed, our psychological pain is able to be healed. We see even in many respects that God brings his healing to us biologically, but all of these things we would call the first fruits of the reality of the resurrection to come. And today and in these days we walk, we see and feel the taint of sin and the strain of it everywhere we look in this fallen world. And so you can imagine with me, and I would encourage you to do this, would you let your mind imagine just a few aspects of what this might be like with the curse of sin completely removed. And the first I would encourage you to think about is the fact that no curse means no disease. No disease whatsoever. I mean, can you imagine a world where there is no cancer? Can you imagine no Alzheimer's disease? Can you imagine no HIV and no AIDS? No emphysema, no heart disease. If you've ever seen pictures of little children in Africa, in refugee camps who are dying of malaria or diarrhea or malnutrition, you know how lovely it will be to have no disease, no atrophy, no arthritis, no cold, no flu. To have healthy organs and healthy muscles and healthy joints and healthy systems. And the scripture says in Revelation that the very leaves of the trees will be for the eternal healing of the nations. So no curse means no disease. No curse also means a glorified body. You and I will have glorified bodies. In heaven, I will have a glorified body. I trust that means I'll have a mind like Pastor Gary. Or facial hair like Pastor Josh. I'll have abs like a firefighter and rhythm like a drummer. And and I don't know if God gives us a checklist and we just check it off what we're hoping for. I don't know what that looks like. All I know is the scripture says we will have a glorified body. And I'm so excited about that reality because I have some friends who are handy capable and who are joyfully charging life without the use of their legs or muscles or facing some other kind of physical trial. And when I think about them dancing like the choreographed credits of a Bollywood hit 
When I think about them running across meadows like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, when I think about them hugging Jesus Christ with arms that are fully muscled and functional, I can't help but get emotional. I was running the other day, a Thursday morning, of running my dog, Scout. We're on the trails, and uh, we're running past this establishment called Little Bit. It's a therapeutic writing center. And what these incredible men and women do is they train these horses to be gentle and kind. And then they invite children who are struggling, children whose legs and limbs don't work or function, whose muscles are not at their own disposal, children who are beautiful and wonderful, but are facing incredible challenges physically. And they invite these children to come and ride these horses. They take them riding on the trail, surrounded in the safety of the trainers of the horses and, and the children's own loved ones. And, and so I'm running my dog, Scout, and we're running on the trail. And, and we see uh, uh, this, this beautiful little boy riding his horse, surrounded by friends. Everybody's just smiling big, and I'm smiling big. And the little boy on his horse smiles big at me, just a runner with his dog. And I run past him, and I just burst into tears. And it wasn't because I was going up a horrible hill. (laughs) Because I just was so amazed. I'm so looking forward to the day when God gives him a beautiful, glorified body. He says, this is yours, and I want you to run and jump and dance. I want you to be restored and resurrected, and no taint of the curse will be on that little boy. No taint of the curse will be on you or me. We'll have glorified bodies in that day. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven. An eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We will be resurrected in a glorified body in a resurrected universe. And friends, one of the implications of that means you will have a glorified beauty about you. You'll have a glorified beauty, an individual unique beauty that you will manifest the way that God himself had in mind for you. And this will be beauty and you will be beautiful and everyone around you will be beautiful. But check this out. There'll be no lust because there's no curse. There's no taint of sin. There will be no envy. You're not going to look at somebody else and wish you had their curves or their flat places. Right? You, You will be beautiful and they will be beautiful and you will celebrate their beauty as they will celebrate your beauty without any hints of envy or covetousness, without any hint of objectification or using their beauty for your own sake. It will all be for the glory and the honor of God. You will radiate His glory because you are made in His image. And it will all be for Him. You will celebrate one another's beauty as well as your own. And friends, you will have glorified desires. Glorified desires. So you will have this godly contentment about you. You will not have envy. You will not compare yourself to one another. You will enjoy yourself and you will enjoy others in a very perfect state. And I say this recognizing that I have many friends who struggle with addictions in this life. And the idea of having glorified desires should be a great, great hope. 
No more will you wrestle with the desire to pursue activities that hurt you, that hurt your heart, that hurt others in your life. And friends, we know that even now God gives such great strength and peace as we walk with him. And many of you are walking in sobriety and wholeness. But you would attest that in this fallen world, it's still a wrestling match and an exhausting one at times. And you will be glorified in your body and you will be glorified in your desires. And over Lake, I just want to tell you, there's so much more. There is so much more. And so next week, I'm going to talk about the lack of scarcity. I'm going to talk about the deal with technology. I'm going to talk about time and how that functions. Uh, free will and the whole new natural order that God has planned. But you got to come back next week. And friends, you got to grab a friend and bring them with you next week because everybody wants to know about heaven. But the big question is, how does all of this impact the here and the now? And here's the deal. God made heaven for you. He made heaven for me. He didn't make hell for you. He made hell for Satan. Satan's not in charge of hell. He's not running it like a prison warden. No, he's an inmate. In the deepest, darkest place where he's tormented for eternity. And he's tormented because of the hell he's put you through. You're not supposed to go there. God doesn't want you there. You don't have to go there. God wants you to be with him in heaven for eternity. In fact, God paid a great price so that you would be saved by him. So that you would know his love and see it tangibly. And the price that that he paid was Jesus Christ. And in a verse that so many of us know and we're so familiar with that it just goes right over our heads. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. That's the motivation of God. Sending his son Jesus Christ so that you might be saved, so that I might be saved. And what salvation means is this. You simply place your faith in Jesus. You place your trust in him. You trust the work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You trust in his resurrection as the very first example of the resurrection that he invites you into. You say yes to him. You place your faith in Jesus. Nobody else. You don't place your faith in a whole lot of religion. You don't place your faith in a whole lot of good work. You don't place your faith in a whole lot of self-help. You place your faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he has accomplished on the cross. And I want to remind you of, of some of the last words in our amazing Scripture and the revelation of God's heart to us, some of the very last words you'll find at the very end of the book are the words, come. Come. To all who are thirsty, come. God says, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Come. The invitation is on the table. Jesus Christ died on the cross So that you would know him now, walk with him now, and enjoy eternity with him. Will you come? Will you say yes to him today? I want you to bow your heads and let's pray together.
And Lord Jesus, we do want to say yes to you. And right now, Lord, I'm just aware that there are many different places on the spiritual spectrum that are represented in this room. And so, Lord, for those of us who are already walking with you, we in our hearts, we say yes right now again. In fact, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, I would just encourage you, can you audibly say yes with me? Yes, Jesus, yes. We are yours, and we ask that you would allow these realities of eternity to fuel us. We ask that you would let these realities of eternity fill us with joy and passion for living for you in the here and now. We pray that you would give us Paul's sense of clarity as we set our minds and our hearts on heaven, that we would be even more effective and more loving in this life as we anticipate the life to come. But Jesus, I'm also aware that in this room there are some who have never said yes to you. Some who maybe are on the fence, some who have never thought through the reality of heaven that you've prepared for them. And Lord Jesus, my, my hope, my prayer is that right now you'd be working on their heart. That spirit, you would be encouraging and motivating. That you would be revealing your love to them. That you want them to experience heaven with you. That you want them to understand how good your love is. How rich and rewarding and full. And so Jesus, my prayer is right now that in the quietness of their heart, they would say yes to you. They would say yes, Jesus. I place my trust in you. Yes, Jesus, I I want to be with you in eternity. And yes, Jesus, I want to be forgiven and walk with you today. Lord Jesus, would you meet them? Would you encourage them? Would you allow your spirit to come around them and to comfort them and to buoy them up and to allow them as well to set their hearts and their minds on the eternal realities you have planned for us? We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, we're so thankful that you have invited us to heaven and that you paid the ticket so that we can all get in. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.